0: The sermon text for this morning is from Genesis chapter two, verses eight through 14, and Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. And your pew Bible, um, Genesis will be on pages page two, and Matthew on page 8:19. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Matthew thirteen forty-four through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever.
1: Let's pray together. Father, what we acknowledge uh, now um, is uh, what is true all the time, whether or not we acknowledge it, which is that you are the one who enriches the world and our lives. And so when we uh, pray with uh, the psalmist and we say we rejoice at your word as those who find great spoil, uh, we know that the spoil and the treasure in the word of the Lord is the Lord of the word. And so what I'm asking, Father, is that by your spirit and because of the work of your son, you would grant that you would be found this morning in your word. And, Lord, we pray that at first for uh, Christians. And we pray it also for non-Christians because there is no greater need that we have than to be met by you through the Lord Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, like uh, like my heart and like uh, each of your hearts, uh, the theme of our passages is treasure. Uh, We have three texts before us this morning, and each of them is a treasure story. Well, we really have two texts, but three treasure stories. There's a treasure story in Genesis 2 that comes uh, through Moses, and then Jesus in verses 44 through 46 of Matthew 13, gives us two more treasure stories. And no, I ha- don't worry, I have not forgotten about verses 1 through 43 in Matthew 13. I remember what I said last week about Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is uh, the third big block of text, t- of teaching, excuse me, that Matthew has kind of structured his gospel around. The Sermon on the Mount was the first one, and then basically chapter 10 was the second one. This is now the third big block of teaching, chapter 13, and what Matthew has done in chapter 13 is collected a whole bunch of the parables that our Lord taught uh, about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, and I'm starting here in verses 44 through 46 because the theme of these two parables is what i regard this is just a function of how i understand Matthew 13 that of all the things that we're going to see Jesus teach us about the kingdom of heaven the there is one theme above all other themes. It permeates everything that he teaches us about the kingdom of heaven. It permeates and drives every facet of his ministry, and it is the beauty at the heart of the gospel. And that theme is this, the surpassing and unsurpassable worth of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, we are supposed to think above all other things, uh, is a treasure. Now, why it's a treasure and why it's worthy of the most urgent and decisive action we could ever take and why it's worthy of our greatest joy, well, that's what we need to think about this morning. And I want to focus what we think about together along three lines of observation. First, uh, that we're made for treasure. What it means to be a human being is to be made for treasure. Secondly, I want us to think about what we learn from these parables, about the humility of God. And thirdly, I want us to think together about what these parables and Genesis 2 teach us about the true worth of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, you do realize, don't you, that the Bible is a treasure story. I mean, that's what this book is. It's a treasure story. So when people tell me they find the Bible boring, I'm like, are you... You're kidding me, right? I mean, this is a treasure story. If I told you that in front of your chair today there was a treasure map, I would lose your eyes real quickly. Well, there is. In the Bible, for some of you, it's in your lap. And the reason the Bible is a treasure story is because the universe is a treasure story. The universe is a treasure story. And that means that every life within the universe, which would be 100% of us and a lot of other people, that the story of every single human life is a treasure story. So the Bible's a treasure story. The reason the Bible's a treasure story is because the universe is a treasure story. And because the universe is a treasure story, that means that every life lived within the universe is by definition, whether a Christian life or a non-Christian life, a treasure story. What it means to be a human being is to have been made for treasure. And just like me, friends, you were born with a treasure map written on the inside of your hearts. You were were born a blank slate. I know sometimes when you study philosophy and all those kind of things and you read books that sometimes you will see the view expressed that human beings, when they're born, are a blank slate. Well, that's a bunch of hooey because every single human being is born with a treasure map written on their hearts, and therefore their fundamental identity is as a treasure hunter. Now, we might use other words for that. Sometimes we will say that we were born as worshipers, but it's the same thing. A worshiper is someone who is in pursuit of worth A treasure hunter is somebody who is in pursuit of treasure. That's what it means to be a human being. And every single one of our hearts, mine, yours, every single human being who has ever lived 24 hours a day is singing a song. And the song goes like this. X marks the spot. Over there. And it's over there. And there's some more treasure over there. That's why we do what we do. That's why we get angry when the X that marks the spot is blocked, or what we think the spot is. And so that's why I want to begin by looking at Genesis 2. I asked Richard to read those verses because of what happens uh, to me every time I read them. Every time I read those verses, well, at least within the last couple years, every time I read those verses in Genesis 2... Something happens in my heart. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been a Christian for 31 years. I've read Genesis 2 a lot of times. And I have always previously looked at verses 10 through 14 kind of scratching my head. They feel like an interruption, right? If you go with me to Genesis 2 and you see it in context, You know, uh, verses 8 through 10, they describe, if you picture this as a movie, I want you to think about it like it's a movie, okay? And where's the camera in verses 8 through 9? Well, where the camera is in verses 8 through 9 is showing you the Lord making Adam and then putting him in the midst of this beautiful garden. And then if you jump down to verse 15, In Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So it's like the camera in verse 15 goes back to the man, but in between is verses 10 and 14, and what's happening in 10 and 14, they're not an interruption of of the narrative, they're an explanation of it. And what happens in verses 10 through 14, if we think about this like a movie, is the camera lifts up away, it's a scene change. And the camera lifts up away from Adam in the garden and looks out over the garden to the land beyond the garden. The land that awaits Adam out there and awaits Eve out there and awaits their progeny out there. And you notice what we see about that land? It's beautiful. And it's got treasure in it. Do you see that? Twice we're told, hey, there's gold in that land. It's an amazing thing. You know what I see when I look at that scene? I see the heart of God. That's why I wanted you to see that text. God is so extravagant. The world before the fall, we're being shown, is the heart of God being turned inside out, abundant in generosity, abundant in beauty, just electric with loveliness. It's out there, and we know what Adam doesn't know. You see, Adam doesn't have the benefit of having going up on a crane to peer out of the garden, but we see what he doesn't know, which is no matter where he goes in that world, he's going to find treasure. There's going to be gold, there's going to be bdellium, there's going to be onyx stones, there's going to be beauties that aren't in the garden because the generosity of God is inexhaustible. And what happens when we look at those verses is we're just being told by the Holy Spirit, see the goodness of God. See what God had prepared for those He had made. That the world is filled with treasure because the heart of God is a treasure-filled heart. But you know, I also see, when I look at those verses, my own heart in this sense. When I read those verses, you know what I want to do? I want to jump into the text. And I want to go there. When I see that vista, this text pulls me in. Does it do that for you? It's so beautiful. Like when I see pictures of Half Dome in Yosemite. Before I had actually stumbled my way to the top a few years ago, when I would see Half Dome against the blue sky, what would happen to me when I would see that picture is I wanted to go to the top. And that's exactly what happens to me when I read verses 10 through 14. You see, I realize when I read those verses that God made me a treasure hunter. I see that I'm made for that kind of treasure. And it's true, it's so true, friends, that, that that's not just a beautiful background that's dumped into Genesis 2. We're supposed to experience that as a summons to, to pursue the very purpose for which we were made, which is to receive and enter the treasure of treasures, which is God himself. That God made the treasure, that God gave men the treasure, and that men and us included were made for that treasure. But sadly, right, we know that Genesis 2 is followed by Genesis 3. And we know that this vision is, <clears throat> is more complicated, And we know that what Adam and Eve did is they squandered the treasure with their sin, right? They rebelled against God. They said, you know what? We want the little T treasure without the obligations of the big T treasure, which is you, you, God. We want to be our own God. We want the little T treasure of a full earth, of abundance, of freedom, of dignity, without being accountable to you we'll settle for the lowercase t treasure. Because really, we're kind of suspicious of your intentions. Because we've come under the sway of the lies of the evil one who's told us that that treasure out there is a trap. It's a facade. And here's the deal with that. We can't be too hard on Adam and Eve because we've all repeated the same error 10 billion times in our lives. How many of us have not doubted the goodness of God? How many of us can say honestly, of course, these are rhetorical questions, the answer is zero, right? So no one, raise your hand, please. We'll have to have a follow-up after the service. But none of us can say that we have not suspected the goodness of God, right? So we're just like Adam and Eve in that sense, and in fact, we've we're worse in many ways because we've compounded, our eyes have been lifted up above the Garden of Eden. And we've seen the, the view. But you know, as as terrible as our sin is, as much of an offense as it is, you, you know, what, what sin does ultimately is it Is it? Is it makes us into embezzlers? That's what Adam and Eve were. You know what an embezzler is? The difference between an embezzler. I I love these kind of things. This is one of the benefits of going to law school. You learn the difference between an embezzler and an armed robber. Do you know the difference? Oh, this is good. Uh, a, a, A robber comes up to somebody and by threat of force, straight on takes what belongs to someone else. That's one kind of theft. You know you're being robbed. An embezzler is somebody who steals without a weapon, but deceitfully through a position of trust. Sin makes every one of us an embezzler of the treasures that God has entrusted to us. So no one escapes from that. But you know what sin can't do? What sin can't do, friends, we were made for treasure. Sin can't change that. Sin can't erase. It's powerless in a certain sense to change the fundamental wiring of the human heart that we are treasure hunters. It cannot change the fact that on the human heart, unlike porpoises and unlike orangutans and unlike cows, that there's a treasure map written on the inside of the human heart. Sin can't change that. The only thing that sin can do is change, it can move the X. It can't erase the map. It just says the X isn't there with God. The X is over here with money or with sex or with the approval of men or with comfort or with control. The X is over here. Pursue that. But it can't change the fact that you're a treasure hunter. The other thing that sin can't do is it can't change God's heart. Have you ever thought about that? That for all the wreckage of sin, for all the terrible consequences of sin, this just, in my preparations, this just absolutely stunned me this week to think how powerless sin is to change the heart of God. And I realized as I thought about that 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 is my only hope. You see... If sin could change the heart of God, if sin made him somebody who went from being a treasure giver to a treasure taker, well, we, we don't have any hope, right? Sin can't, can't de-treasure hunt us. That's who we are. And sin can't, doesn't have the power to turn God from a treasure giver to a treasure taker. His determination to fill the world that he has made with treasure, to be the giver of treasure, sin cannot touch that. And so that's why when we get to Jesus' parables in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it's just absolutely stunning to me. Because Jesus is saying after many millennia, of sin and rebellion. So much unfaithful conduct toward God on behalf of humanity in general and Israel, the covenant people in particular. And now, after all these millennia, Jesus stands in the middle of Galilee on a street corner, as it were, and he announces something as the herald of God that is both totally unexpected And totally undeserved. And what he's saying is that the true treasure, the ultimate treasure for which we've been made and for which the deepest desires of our hearts long, that treasure has not been lost forever. Because sin is not more powerful than the heart of God. And that's the last thing we would expect after our sin, isn't it? I mean, if God's heart were like ours... Just think about the last time you gave somebody a cold shoulder and why you did it. Well, they weren't nice to me or they failed me or they disappointed me or they hurt me. So I'll deny them the benefit of my fellowship. If God's heart were like ours, here's what would happen. Here's what history would look like. The more sin we add to creation, the more treasure he would subtract from creation. Right? I mean, if God were like us, and praise Him that He is not. We we add sin to the system, He would take treasure out of the system. But you know, God's not like that, and Jesus' parable is proving that God is not like that. Friends, you get it? The universe is not a machine. Right? What we receive from God bears no, no proportion to what we put into it. And that is our only hope. You know, sometimes people say, I just want God to be fair with me. No, you don't. No, you don't. The free gift is not like the transgression. See, God isn't de the world even in the wake of the fall. That's what Jesus' parables prove. He's not de the world in the wake of the fall. God's heart isn't like ours. You remember, remember Romans 5? The free gift is not like the transgression, right? Because, because by the one transgression... Sin entered the world and many died. But as a result, because of the grace of God, because of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, when there were many transgressions, the grace of God, when there were many transgressions, the grace of God abounded all the more, Paul says. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the heart of God. That's what Jesus is telling us in these parables that we have got to see, that God is still the treasure giver and that the power of sin is not great enough to change that orientation of the heart of God. The power of sin in general, the power of sin in particular in your life and in my life cannot overwhelm the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you think it's a push, my friends? Do you think it's even close? Grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, what this means, what Jesus is saying, is that when the world was created, when it was unstained by sin, it still was not at its maximum treasure Holding treasure displaying capacity because every single moment since the fall, God has been adding treasure to creation. Every morning you and I wake up in a fallen world, there are new mercies, right? Lamentation says. But we can go back even further than that. In the very moment, right, in the very moment of Adam and Eve's sin, when the Lord appears to issue judgment against the serpent and then against Adam and Eve, remember, in that very instant, that very hinge, where the power of sin has been at its maximum, right? At that very hinge, God makes this astonishing promise that through the very woman who has sinned, Eve, he is choosing to raise up a seed from that woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Do you realize what that means? That we know that seed ultimately is Jesus Christ. That seed of the woman is the one who crushes the head of the serpent and all the consequences of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world. He crushes the serpent's head on the cross by paying in his own body on that cross all the cost of that sin right under placing himself under God's judgment so we might go free that's just incredible and what genesis 315 means friends is that the entire purpose of history is to serve as a showcase of the treasure of Jesus Christ that's the only reason that the universe continued after the sin of Adam and Eve that's it because there was no reason for God to sustain and preserve a creation that was in rebellion against Him except to display the treasure of His Son. Every morning, every sin, and His grace abounds. And the greatest proof of that, of course, is Jesus Christ, as I've been saying. And the way you know how to find the greatest treasure is the cross really does mark the spot. That's where we see the goodness of God in His holiness and the goodness of God most clearly in His love is all at the cross. The cross marks the spot. You see, the cross proves that the greatest treasure in the world, the treasure that we were made for is God. All the justice you have longed for in your life is proven at the cross. All the love and grace that you have longed for and continue to long for in your life, it's at the cross. The cross marks the spot. And so this brings us to the whole theme of the humility of God, our second point, that is so prominent in these parables. is so interesting to me. What do I mean by the humility of God? Well, what I mean by that is this is that what these parables show us, as many of the other parables in chapter 13 are going to show us, is that the way God asserts His kingly authority over a fallen world and the way that He brings His kingdom and the way that He gives His kingdom is by means of a breathtaking humility. And we see this humility, I think, in two ways in these parables first through the invisible men, and then through the two visible men. What do I mean by the invisible men? Now, let me, let me just pause there before I get into the invisible men, and you're wondering, where are the invisible men? Well, you can't see them because they're invisible, but they're there. But I realize that the phrase, the humility of God, may, may sound wrong to you. It may sound odd to you, but I really do mean it that way because, you know, all grace by its very nature, is humble. Because because all grace, by definition, gives in order to give and not to receive. All grace, by definition, is not getting something back. All grace, by definition, is imbalanced. And so in that sense, it's humble. And I think we see that in these parables. I think that's one of the themes that Jesus is showing us about God. First, uh, let's think about those invisible men. Who are the invisible men? Well, they're the people, the many who have passed the treasures by in these parables. Jesus doesn't have to tell us about them directly because he doesn't need to. But by focusing in each case on a single man, the man in the field and the man who's the merchant who's seeking fine pearls, what Jesus is emphasizing is something very shocking, that these two men are the exception rather than the rule. In other words, there are a lot of people who have passed by that same field and not found that treasure. And there are a lot of other merchants by implication who have handled or seen or had the opportunity to come close to that one pearl of great value and chose either not to buy it or missed it altogether. You see, that feels like a great tragedy to us, and it is, but even more so, it's an offense against the worth of the treasure and against the worth of the pearl. Many have had eyes but have not seen. Where are all those other people? They've passed the treasures by. And I think that's a very sobering reminder. It reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, in chapter 7, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, we need to feel how sobering this is and how forceful it is. Jesus is telling us, friends, that the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is going to be overlooked, is going to be disregarded, is going to be passed by. By many. And that is to feel to us like a foolish choice. That is to feel to us like a loss. And that is to feel to us like an offense against the worth of the kingdom of heaven. That's to feel to us. The nicest thing we can say about that is that it is a massive mistake. It amazes me, and it ought, to, it ought to amaze me more than it does, but it amazes me to think about how much God uh, lets people pass by the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. How, how humble God is not to stamp His foot down and not to raise His voice. How many pass by the gospel, how many pass by the cross and do not recognize and choose to be distracted by other little t treasures and walk right by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many people walk by the gospel? How many times in my own life before my conversion did I walk by Jesus Christ, walk by His name, walk by people who loved Him, walk by the gospel that people had shared with me, how many times did I walk by it and God let me get away with it? It's just astonishing to me how humble a God is. And yet in the fullness of time, right? I mean, really, even before that, I mean, what we need to say is that the, the, one of the great scandals of the Bible is that for every moment since Eden, since that fall in Genesis 3, God has let the whole world pass him by. The whole world. There is nobody, right? There is nobody who has not gone astray. Now, is that not amazing to you? The patience of God? You know, so often when disasters happen, either at a big, on a big scale or in a personal scale, you know, the fist gets clenched and it gets lifted to God. That's not fair. Oh, friends, what we lose sight of is that invisible mercy we've been living on every second we're alive. And that wasn't fair either. It was mercy. And God, you know, in the fullness of time, He sends forth His Son into the world, Paul says in Galatians 4, and... He is, he's buried, if you will, in obscurity in the world and ultimately delivered over to be crucified as a substitute of sinners. That's, that's what God's intention was. What the world's intention was, was to say, you are worthless, you're the opposite of treasure. You are so much the opposite of treasure. We want to. We want to show in the way that we treat you, in the way that we ignore you, in the way that we punish you and where we crucify you. We want to say that above all else, you are the bottom of the worth scale on planet Earth. And God didn't crack the world open in judgment. It's amazing. How humble God is. Think about these two men in the parables. They show us the humility of God too. And we see it in two ways. Their expectations and their preparation. Their expectations. Here's what I mean by that. (laughs) Neither one of these men expected to find a treasure that would change their lives. Do you notice that? The first guy is just walking through the field. And one commentator says, and by dumb luck, I don't obviously think luck exists, but I like the expression because it emphasizes that this discovery in the field was not in proportion to what this man's expectations were. And we know that the merchant, too, he's not setting out. He doesn't wake up in the morning that the parable describes and say, I am going to search for one pearl of great value so that I can sell all my inventory and put myself out of business. That's not his plan either. And both these men discover their treasure in the course of their ordinary lives. Do you see that? I love that. I love what Jesus, this little glimpse that Jesus is giving to us about about God, about the nature of Christianity. Friends, this treasure, this treasure of the kingdom of heaven, you do not have to trek to the top of some Tibetan mountain in order to enter some extreme mountain temple where the God of the heavens will... Condescend to meet you just for one second. You don't have to do this pilgrimage trek to meet him. And you don't have to enter into some mystical kind of experience that takes you out of ordinary life. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is near, it's embedded in the details of ordinary life because all this world is meant to be the treasure room of the living God. So, mothers who change diapers. Retirees who change diapers, people who work, people who are disabled and can't work, people who are doing household chores, people who are working in environments where they're not appreciated. Do you see what the implication of of these two parables is? That the treasure is right there, right there, my friends, because this is who God is, He is right there. And friends, earlier this week I was reading Exodus 3. I was thinking about Moses. I was just so blown away by Moses again. You know how you read these stories that you've read over and over and over again, and then God just says, boop, let me show you something new. Because you haven't thought about this enough, Francis. You know, what's Moses doing? Well, he's tending his flock at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's in the midst of ordinary life. He's with a bunch of sheep, which means he's with a bunch of flies, which means he's in the midst of a bunch of bad smells, and he's walking on ground that is thick with sheep waste. And God meets him there. The living God who says to him, I am that I am. I am the eternal one. I am the covenant keeper. I'm the one who never forgets my promises. He speaks to Moses from a bush. No one is humble enough before that God. Can you out-humble him? You can't. And then he says, he says, Moses, take off your sandals because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. That's ground that is thick with sheep waste, friends. And God says, my presence sanctifies this space. I can be known, and I am to be worshiped here. See, these parables show us that God brings His kingdom not in proportion to our expectations. These men were not expecting to meet the treasure that would change their lives. And some of you in your story, when you think back how it is that you were met by Christ, what you see When you actually look at the details of your story and friends, some of you may be non-Christians who are here and you think, I just came to church because my friends dragged me. The last thing you would expect to meet in church is the living God. Because really, this place is just a bush to God. God, you see, friends, for those of you who think about it, everybody's story is like this. That... That God's delivery, if you will, is far greater than what we were seeking. There's no balance there. It's so humble. I mean, honestly, for those of you who are Christians, what did you understand about Him when He received you into His family? You understood nothing, you knew you were a great sinner. You knew God, you owed God everything, but you didn't even understand that. And you didn't understand how great a sinner you were. And you knew that Jesus was the Savior who had been promised by God for sinners and that you had to believe in him, but you really didn't even understand much of that. And God took that little mustard seed of your faith that was so confused, so tangled up with mixed motives, and what did he do? He opened the floodgates of treasure and gave them all to you. I call that humble. I call myself proud. These men weren't prepared. You can't, you know what's missing from from Jesus' parable? You you know, there's nothing in those parables that says that explains why these men and not the others. There were other people who worked in that field. There were other men who walked in that field. Why this guy? There were other merchants who presumably were in search of fine pearls and who even saw this pearl of great value. But why this guy? Why this one? The parable doesn't give us any information about to say that these guys were superior either in terms of their diligence or their wisdom or certainly not their piety. What's the point of those absences? Well, I think it's very clear. I think it's this, that the treasure found them. The treasure finds them. Is that not your testimony, my brothers and sisters? It may not have been your testimony when you were first converted, but now you look back on it and you realize that the only reason you responded to the treasure is because the treasure found you first. God is so humble. He is so humble, and the cross marks the spot, right? I mean, that's where we see it. The same God who revealed himself to Moses in a bush and lets... Let's the treasure of the kingdom, as it were, be buried in the world and passed by in obscurity and be passed over by so many friends. That God shows himself most clearly, most fully, and gives himself away most dramatically on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, near the garbage dump. I call that humble. Humble. I call that absolutely astonishing. The treasure finds us on the cross. Where, I mean, if God, if you were God and you would want people to see your glory and you would want them to see your power and you would want them to see your beauty and your excellence, would you, my friend, pick? A cross. I don't think you would. I think you'd pick a throne. I think you'd pick some demonstration of power, like parting the Red Sea. It seems like a lot of these... I mean, if we were going to do it, we might reallocate the great acts in the Bible, right? No, no, you got to give Jesus the parting the Red Sea. you got to give Jesus the plagues. That is the most most overwhelming display of God's power in the history of the universe. More powerful than the universe itself. The cross marks the spot of God's humility and his power by which he brings the kingdom. That brings us to our last point, which is the true worth of the kingdom of heaven. And really, this is the most important point of both parables. And we see it in two ways, and I'm going to do this very quickly. We see it first in what the men give up to gain their treasure in the parables, and secondly, what God gives to give us his treasure. Think about the men, and we're only going to touch on this briefly today, because next week as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, this is where I'm going to... Uh, focus. We're going to come back to these parables. But I want you to see this morning, I want you to see that Jesus gives us a measure here of the value of the kingdom of heaven by illustrating its value through the choices that these two men make in the parables. And the first is, notice that both men take very urgent, very decisive, and very sacrificial action. In both of the parables, you have the same three actions. They go, they sell all that they have, and they buy. The treasure, right? And in the case of the man in the field, you notice it's in the present tense. Then in his joy, he goes present tense like you're watching the movie happen. Like there he goes. He's going to give everything. He sells all that he has. And he buys that field, and the merchant went and sold all that he had and bought that field. That there's decisive action. Jesus is saying, if you're going to know the true worth of the kingdom of heaven, you have to know that it's worthy of your most decisive action, not your peripheral focus, your central focus. It's worth any sacrifice, any decision that you have to make. And not only that, but there's also a choice of joy, You notice that? That's especially evident in the first one, right? Then in his joy over it, he goes and sells all that he had. But you know, all that selling, all that sacrifice, it's not a hardship. Do we even have a category for value like that? Particularly when the value is God. I don't know that any of us can say, got that one. And it's true in the merchant as well. He's joyful, although the text doesn't say it explicitly, right? I mean, he put himself out of business. He just wants one pearl. That's enough for him. And he's happy. He's joyful. Joy is not a freak accident in the life of the Christian, it's a choice. But much more fundamentally, right, what Jesus is wanting to prepare us for is God's cho- the choices that God makes, what He gives in order to bring His kingdom, and what He brings and gives in order to give us the treasure of His kingdom. See, because our choices, all that sacrificial action, all that urgent action, all that joy, those those which we're supposed to take in response to the kingdom, those really are, are supposed to be an echo of God's, we're supposed to understand them as an echo of God's own choices to bring his kingdom to us. His actions are supposed to beget ours. His choice is to beget ours. His joy to beget ours. Because remember when I said at the beginning of this sermon that the universe is a treasure story? Do you remember that? Well, now we know what kind of treasure story it is. See, the treasure story, the greatest treasure story of all, the treasure story that is the meaning of the universe is not about Man finding the greatest treasure of all, but about the God who gives the greatest treasure of all, himself. You see, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the greatest treasure story of all. It is God, it's about God who gives the greatest treasure himself, himself. So that his kingdom might be established, his glory might be seen, his goodness might be experienced. You see, do you know what the true worth of the kingdom of heaven is, friends? Do you know what the true treasure of the kingdom of heaven is? It is not forgiveness, it is not eternal life, it is not adoption. No, the true treasure. Of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is telling us now in the parable in a veiled way, but will show us very clearly on Calvary. The true treasure of the kingdom of heaven is the king of heaven. He's the one who we should have our joy in. It's for him that we should take the most urgent action, the most decisive action, for in order to obtain him as it were, No sacrifice is too much. You see, because he sold all that he had. He sold all that he had to bring his kingdom. You know, just for him to be on the earth telling this parable to us, standing in Galilee in a human body. He had to sell all that he had as the eternal Son of God. He had to empty himself of his own glory, and he had to drain himself of all his eternal prerogatives as the Son of God, his equality with God. He did not count it a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He sold all that he had, friends, just to be on planet Earth as a man. And then he wasn't done selling himself on the planet Earth. No, he let himself be emptied even further. He let himself be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Why? So that he could bring us his kingdom. So he can make a place for us. Friends, what Jesus did for us, how do you know the worth of the king of heaven? How do you know that he is worth every decision that you could possibly make for him, every sacrifice that you could possibly make for him? How can you know most securely that he is worthy of your joy? It's because he gave himself. He who was the giver of all the treasure made himself the substitute of all the takers, to be judged. He who was the owner of the universe gave himself in our place to become the thief on the cross and to be judged there for on behalf of and as a substitute of all the thieves, all the treasure thieves, he was the treasure. There is nothing that that king is not worth And you know what's amazing about it? Is there's one other implication of Jesus' parables here, and it's this, that this king, who is worth everything, can and must be had, must be received now as your present possession. You see, both men, they don't buy the possibility of treasure. They buy and acquire the possession of treasure. And what Jesus is saying is not just that the kingdom of heaven is a reasonable prospect toward which you work, but friends, the presence of the king who is going to bring the kingdom by giving himself, selling all that he has, that imposes a responsibility on every single person to respond to that king now. And not just a responsibility to do it. In fact, you and I are both exercising that responsibility now, either in receiving him or pushing him away. But friends, what I plead with you to do is, is to recognize and yield today to this great wonder that the greatest thing that Jesus gives up for us is also the greatest thing that he has to give to us, which is himself. And the cross marks the spot of that treasure. Follow the map of your heart to Him. Let's pray. Lord, how we pray that you would recalibrate our hearts because they don't value what they should and they don't value it in the right proportions. We don't value you as we should. And so, for my brothers and sisters, I pray for that stunning recalibration that your beauty and goodness brings as we're reminded again of the treasure that it is to belong to you, and for those who are not yet yours, how oh, I pray that the, the worth of Jesus would be their pursuer and would capture them. I ask in Jesus' name.